Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Okay, we have quite the task before us. There is two, well, one, two, three chapters left of Ephesians. And I have today and next Sunday to finish it. And so we're, we're going to be rocking and rolling, going pretty quick. We're going to flip the switches, hit the NOS, if you don't know what that is, and a dragster use nitrous oxide to make it go faster. And we're going to go pretty fast here to get through the text because there's a certain things I want to emphasize as we go through this. So we won't spend a lot of time in review. We'll be moving kind of quickly, but we are in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. But do remember that this is a letter written by an early Christian evangelist and apostle by the name of Paul. Um, it's a few decades after the time of Jesus. So Jesus has already died, buried, and rose again. Christianity is spreading throughout the region, and early Christian um, church leaders would write letters by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to different churches or different individuals to teach them. And we learn as well, reading those letters that they wrote to those churches, because those churches deal with the same stuff we deal with, the same struggles, the same temptations, the same problems, the same questions that we, they had, we had. So Paul's writing this book to the Ephesians, and I believe the key verse of the book is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, where we're going to begin today, which says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus to try to get them to walk properly. We're calling it walking with purpose as we look in this class because our purpose is different in Christ Jesus than those in the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, he laid out how we are saved and we're blessed and we're given God's grace, we're redeemed, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and he talks about all that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he talks about how we're saved not on the basis of our own meritorious works, but on the grace of God, and it's the old Jew and Gentile can come together on that basis because the old law has been done away with. Chapter 3, as we looked at last week, we talked about how many people wondered, how is God going to save the Gentiles because it seemed that he only cared about the Jews? Well, it's been revealed that God is going to save Jew and Gentile the same way in Christ Jesus. So now we have strength, we have motivation, we have um, the ability to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man and we trust in God and we follow him because chapter 3 verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. So we have, this is the backdrop. We're saved, we're united, we're empowered, we're strengthened. Then chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now it's time to live like it. So chapters 1 through 3 are about it. Basically how great it is to be a Christian. It's, you have all these things, and it's awesome. But now it's time to put it into practice. The re we go to church, you know, on Sunday, we gather together here, and we hear sermons, we listen to classes, we sing praises to God, we pray, we encourage one another. We're supposed to do something with that, though. It's not, all right, I'm a Christian, it's great. It's, I'm a Christian, what now? And chapter 4 is about the what now. What do I do now that I'm saved? Chapter 4, verse 1 says, live like it. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then all of chapter 4 is pretty much 
preaching the same idea that the way you are going to walk in a worthy manner is to make sure that the church is united. And man, the more I spend time in Scripture, especially the New Testament, I see unity being the key teaching of it. I mean, obviously, it's, it's one of the key teachings. It's not the only one, but it's a very important teaching. And most of the, the problems in the early church had to do with division, faction, splits, things like that. We're not supposed to look for reasons to divide. We're supposed to look for reasons to unite. And that's what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. He wants us to be together. Jew and Gentile need to be together. Rich and poor need to be together, young and old. In that culture at that time, even slave and free needed to be together. It was a challenge, but he wants us to be united. So let's read chapter 4, verse 2. How are we going to walk in a manner worthy? He lists it out, and if you're a note taker, you should be putting one, two, three, four next to these words right here because he tells us how to walk worthy. Number one, with all humility. Number two, with all gentleness. Number three, with patience. Number four, showing tolerance for one another in love. Number five, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Number six, in the bond of peace. There's your list. There's your sermon. Now, you might classify them differently. I kind of split them up. It could actually be four points or seven points, depending on how you look at it. But either way, you walk in a worthy manner by doing these things. And if you were to summarize up Verses 2 and 3, how, what is the way that we walk in a worthy manner? Keeping unity, what's another way to describe that? In love, love each other. Get along is what he tells them. Really, the way the church in Ephesus is going to walk worthily is get along with one another. Now, we're not going to spend the time breaking down each one of these words. you got dictionaries. You can look those up and see what those mean. But basically, there are multiple ways of saying the same thing. I mean, it's various facets of it of you need to get along. And we don't do a good job of that as churches. We don't get along. Congregations a lot of times don't get along. Um, I was in a conversation with a friend, um, I guess it was last week, and he was asking me, about um, the churches of Christ and what we believe and how why, what, what, what makes us different from this or that. And he had a lot of questions about how we operated um, with other churches in the sense of, okay, so is there like kind of an overseeing body? How does this church of Christ get along with that one? And, and all this kind of stuff. He goes, well, what about other ones in the same city? Why are they there? And I finally had to stumble, go, Look, let me tell you why they're all there. Because way back when someone got, didn't get along with somebody else, so they started another congregation. Really. I said, that's really the truth of it. This group over here believed this. This one did that, so they split. This one disagreed with that person. That one disagreed with that one, so they split. And I laid it out there. I said, truthfully, what it is, is division. And a lot of times, that's what happens. It's, um, sometimes it's a good thing. It's, hey, we split and we grew because we wanted to plant churches. That's what we should be doing. It's, hey, guys, we got 200 people here. Let's divide it in half. 100 go to the north side, 100 go to the south side, and now we got two churches and we're growing. That's a good split. But that's not the, usually the ones that happen. It's people not getting along. It's people not starting with this right here with humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent. Oh, man, that takes hard work. You know what? It's hard to get along with people. It's hard to work with problems. When there's a doctrinal difference in the congregation, it's easier to split. 
than it is to actually work through a problem. Because working through a difference of doctrine or opinion or whatever can take years. But, hey, split, you get a new church building somewhere. You know, so he says, no, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This whole book is about walking in a worthy manner. The way we walk worthily is by getting along. And so the church that's reading this in Ephesus is thinking, why, Paul? Why, why is this such a big deal, Paul? Why should we worry so much about this? Why do we need to get along? I mean, the Jews didn't get along. You had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had Essenes, you had Zealots, you had all of those. And the Gentiles, they didn't get along. They had all their little factors. He goes, why should we get along? Look at verse 4. Another list for you. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is um, over all and through all and in all. Why should we be united? Because we're one. How many gods are there? One. How many bodies are there? One. How many spirits are there? One. How many baptisms are there? One. How many faiths are there? One. So if we don't work toward unity, the church in Ephesus is literally going against the nature of God. You think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, working together as one. We're supposed to be one. Now, we, again, could spend time breaking down each one of these words on here. But, again, I think they're all trying to tell us the same thing. That everything about God is one. He's consistent. He doesn't go, oh, there's, there's various um, modes, methods, purposes of baptism. No, there's one. Well, you can have a faith in this. I'll have a faith in that. No, no, there's one. Oh, there's various religious organizations that are, they're, they're different and they serve different gods. No, there's just one body, right? There's supposed to be that unity there. All, everything about God is about oneness and togetherness, and that's the way the church is supposed to be. So someone's on the outside, and they look at a church and they go, how in the world are those people getting along? They have... Jews, they have Gentiles, they have former slave owners, former slaves, they have rich people, they have poor people, they have kings, they have servants. That's what the first century church was supposed to be like. But yet all those people together as one. You think about the friendships we have in the church even here. A lot of us wouldn't have normally met, been together, had that closeness if it wasn't for Jesus. But Jesus causes unity, and that's the way the church is supposed to act. All right, questions or comments up through verse 6? Well, we need to work to fix it. Uh, I don't have an answer for it that can be done in the next five minutes in the class, but we need to make efforts for it. Okay, Cliff, say we're pet peeve time real quick. I, I've been whining about this for three weeks now, and you, I'm not going to give you a chance to answer me on it either because it will cause an argument probably, But because I have the microphone. Why is it that every single church has the exact same time? I visited a town um, a while back in Oklahoma. I was like, I want to see, uh, find a church at a different time here. Every single church met at 10 o'clock. I'm like, well, what if I wanted to go? And then I started thinking in Visalia, what if I wanted to visit other churches? And I'm not talking about just Church of Christ. I want to go to the First Assembly. I want to go to the Methodist. I want to go to the Nazarene. I want to go to all this. Every single church in this town meets at the exact same time. And then I started thinking about this. Cliff Sabro, satanic conspiracy theory, Okay. 
is if we can never meet other people, never see what other people believe, never experience how other people worship and question and talk and converse, we'll always be divided. We will. I mean, because, because then you start to categorize people. When you don't recognize people as other individuals, you look at them as organizations where you'll say things like, well, you know, the Catholics, they believe this. Well, have you ever talked to them? Well, no, but I read what people see. When you don't talk to people, you can't have unity. So my, my theory was is that it's a work of the devil that we all have services at the exact same time because we can never experience anybody else. All right, moving on before I think I'm whack. Verse 7, but to each one of us, so the church in Ephesus is supposed to get along. They're supposed to be together. They're supposed to be united because God is united. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul likes this form of argumentation a lot because back then there was some um, special, you say, supernatural spiritual gifts given to people. Um, that could allow them to do some things to reveal God's word, like speaking in tongues and, and prophesying and so on. And even beyond that, the Spirit, I believe, does give everybody gifts. We might call them talents. We don't like using the word gift because it sometimes associates with something maybe we don't believe. But nevertheless, God has empowered all of us differently. In the first century, some people were empowered to do things that you would consider supernatural but also at the same time, some were also just empowered to do things that we would think is normal. Like, um, obviously in this own congregation, some people are gifted speakers, others are not. Some people are gifted leaders, others are not. Some people are gifted at encouragement, others are not. Some people are gifted at comforting others, others are not. I mean, we understand that. But what happens is sometimes we have a tendency to look at people with certain gifts certain abilities as better than other people. The, in the first century, they did that. We do that too. I mean, you, you see it happen sometimes where preachers are elevated into this higher place than uh, somebody else in the sense of, well, they're better than us because they're preachers, which we're not, by the way. Um, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Paul says, look, you should get along. You should walk right because each one of us, according to the grace was given, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captive of hosts, led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Kind of a creative circular way for Paul to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. Basically saying, look, it was prophesied that Jesus would ascend and he would descend. Basically, he would die and he would rise. And when he did that, it was promised that he was going to give gifts to people. Okay? And he does that. But the gifts that he gives to us, we need to understand what is the source of any gift that anybody has. Holy Spirit God, right? Yeah, even James would say, every good thing given, every perfect gift is given from the Father above, and Him there is no variation or shifting a shadow, right? Same thing, every gift is from God. If every gift is from God, can anybody brag? No, because you didn't buy the gift. 
You can't brag about it. I know I mentioned it last week or two weeks ago. It'd be silly if my kids, and kids still do it because they're children, uh, arguing about who got the best gift on Christmas. All of them didn't, none of them bought those gifts. Mom and dad bought them all for them. So why are they arguing about who's better than who? Because neither one of them paid for those things, right? But they do, they bicker, don't they? I got this. I have a vivid memory of, um, it was the first Christmas at my step-grandparents' house. So people were trying to make the new kids feel welcome and all that kind of thing, you know? And I remember we're opening up presents, and I opened up, and we, they do them in rounds in the family, okay? So everybody got a gift, and everybody opened it at the same time. I opened up roller skates. My sister Kelly, three years younger than me, opened up a coloring book. Now, on the tier of kids' gifts, roller skates are here, coloring books down here, right? And I remember Claire started, or Claire, man, that's weird, I'm getting old. Kelly started crying, hey, he got skates, I got a color book. I remember people scrambling, shaking presents, feeling which one felt like roller skates for Kelly, and finally gave them to her, so that way it, it was juvenile to argue and to think who's better, because none of us bought those gifts. The early church and the church today sometimes acts very childlike, thinking he got roller skates, I only got a coloring book, he's an elder, I'm not. Wah, 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 right? So here's what Paul says. He says, look, verse 11. Now he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Who gave all the gifts? God or the Spirit. And all the gifts given are for what purpose according to verse 12? Yeah, to build us up, to equip the saints, to build up the body, that idea. So it doesn't matter what gift you have. They all came from the same source, and they're all for the same purpose. I mean, I would say that if you're building a house, um, a beautiful, you know, 8 by 12, you know, beam probably looks preeminent compared to a box of nails. However, you can't install that beam without the tiny nail. Right? You understand? Each part is needed for the building up of the building, for the building up of the body. So the church in Ephesus might have been arguing, might have been saying, well, those guys are apostles and, and these guys are prophets. I'm an evangelist or I'm a pastor. And he goes, look, it doesn't matter. They all came from the same place and they're all there for the same purpose. And because of that, verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says all these gifts are needed and they're going to be there until the church achieves perfect unity and therefore don't boast, don't brag, get along because every gift is given through from the same source and every gift is there for the same reason. Um, before anybody asks a question too, I know verse 11 is a little bit of a challenge because in our mind we see, well, well, apostles and prophets seem miraculous and evangelists, pastors, and teachers don't. We're like, well, how, how do you reconcile this? Paul doesn't care. And really, I, from what I see in Paul's writings is Paul doesn't separate, except for when you get to like first uh, Corinthians 13, where he talks about like revelatory gifts and stuff. Um, Paul doesn't ever distinguish what we would say is miraculous and non-miraculous. Because first century evangelist, he sees them all as from God. 
And even today, we need to get away from maybe that thinking of, well, um, those spiritual gifts are done away with. Well, not necessarily, because from what I see here, these are called gifts, and they're still evangelists today. Uh, I think we need to just acknowledge any giftedness as something from God and be thankful for it and use it for the building up of the church whether it be what Paul would call the gift of encouragement in Romans chapter 12 or the gift of prophecy in Ephesians chapter 4. They're both there for the same reason. Yes. It's important, huh? Every gift is needed and everything is necessary. And I would say also, if you, um, the, as a theology of spiritual gifts and things like that, God has always given his people what they needed at a specific time to fulfill a specific purpose. In the first century, they needed apostles. But the apostles served their purpose, and now we don't need those anymore. Um, they needed, um, I, I believe, tongue speaking to get out there and spread the message to, a lang- to worlds that didn't know their language, that there were to, where the apostles didn't know those languages and stuff. But that gift isn't needed. So God gives the church the gifts that it needs to be united. And that's what's neat here is all these gifts that he lists out here, everything here, all of them are designed to help the church mature to unity. And I like that idea here because it seems that in verse 13, unity is seen as the matureness of the church. Division isn't. Dividing, splitting, causing problems and making conflicts and factions over here and this group not talking to that group and all that, that's seen as immature. The mature Christian is those that use the gifts God has given to promote unity in the church. Why? Because God is united and we have a purpose and that purpose is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We've been called and we are called to unity here. In chapter 4. Any questions or comments up through verse 14? Yes. Now we don't brag about the lug nuts, but until you're missing them, huh? Yeah, it is totally necessary. All right, three second lug nut story. I had a 72 Chevelle. I was driving to the drag races in Bakersfield, so excited to race it. The only time I was going to get to race this car had Mickey Thompson tires on the back on these American racing, like Daisy Mag rims. Like 500 yards from the gate to get to Famosa Raceway, I had a blowout on my back tire. Pulled over to the side of the road. Pulled out my spare tire to at least get into the pits. Put my spare tire on. The lug nuts on those racing rims weren't the same design as the ones on the spare tire. So they only went on so far. So the spare tire went like this the whole way into the pit. And I had to go to the tower at the starting line of the drag race. And they had to announce to the entire, we have a racer here that needs some 716s acorn style lug nuts. If you have some, please report to the, and I got the right lug nuts. I was able to at least drive home, never raced the car, sold the car. Now Alex Aguirre owns the car and he still won't sell it back to me. All right. Uh, 30 years later or so. But yes, I miss the lug nuts. You don't brag. I never once bragged about my lug nuts. I was always like, look how fancy the car is over here. 327 Chevy, right? No, lug nuts were needed. Yes, Don. Maybe in a sense, I'm with you on the idea that 
Um, God can give gifts in different forms, but I, I wouldn't try to maybe find a replacement for it in a sense, you know. I, I wouldn't go that far to say, well, he replaced it in this way. Because I've heard people try to do that too with prophecy. They're like, well, prophecy, maybe preachers are modern day prophets. I, I think that it's just God gives, I'm, I'm going to say simply, God gives the church what it needs. And anytime a gift is given in the church, it's designed to promote unity and we should be thankful for it. It's kind of the way I look at it. Um, all right, verse four. Yes. You're kind of told you have to be a prophet now too, huh? Yeah. Well, maybe that's why they were arguing about always. It's really weird. You read in um, like First Corinthians, they really, really wanted to be able to speak in tongues, and they'd argue about that. Like they thought that was the greatest one. And Paul goes, "Look, why do you even think that's the greatest one? It's not." But we have a tendency to look over different things differently. Yes. Well, I'm not going to get into all of that, but I think we misunderstand what the gift of tongues is. And since he doesn't mention the gift of tongues in this passage at all, I'm not going to talk about what the gift of tongues in Scripture is and that kind of thing. Okay? Um, but I saw a pretty cool meme on the internet about that the other day. I'll send you. All right, so verse 14. <laughs> it had Steve Carell from The Office and things. That's pretty good. All right, verse 14. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness, the deceitful scheming. He goes, look, if you guys can be a united front, if you could get along, if you could have that unity, when someone comes in and brings something false, you'll be able to identify because, you know what, we're better off when we have a bunch of people on the same team, you know, answering these questions and stuff. You won't fall into these different sins because you'll have people that have your back. If you're going through Christianity alone, it's easy to drift from this idea to that idea. I, I have different, I'm, as a preacher, you get to meet all sorts of people. There's different people that I know that have a tendency to fall into some really weird, like, conspiracy theories about stuff. And then they'll send me, like, this 80-minute YouTube video say, watch this, it'll answer everything. First off, if you can't explain your doctrine to me in, like, five minutes, I'm not going to pay attention to it. If it takes an 80-minute video or, like, a three-page paper, it's probably false in my mind. So, anyway, um, but they'll come with these weird old things. And they're the same people that always say that I just can't find a church for me. And they go through it alone. When you go through things alone, you have a tendency to drift to this doctrine and then drift to this doctrine and drift to this doctrine. You ever known anybody like that? They, ever, they can't ever just find a congregation and they just come up with some whack ideas. That's this right here. You need that unity to avoid false doctrine. You need that unity to avoid sin and deceitful scheming because the, if you ever watched like a nature show and let's say... Lions are chasing a, a bunch of zebras, usually like hyenas, chasing a bunch of zebras, right? They try to get one away from the herd, right? And the one away from the herd is easily attacked and eaten and all of that. But there's power and there's protection in the herd. We're supposed to be together so that we can be protected against Satan, against false ideas, against sin, even in our own life, against depression, against anxiety, all of that. When you're by yourself all the time, it's unhealthy. I mean, look at the psychology now we're seeing about what happened of all of us being isolated for like two years because of COVID. They're like suicide rates and self-harm among teenagers is like through the roof. Because they miss the herd. We're meant for community, right? 
So he says, be together so that way you are not tossed about, you are not deceived. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. See, someone might come in and say, well, well, I'm just speaking the truth when I do this or that. Do it in love. Do it in love. Because if you, even when it comes to the truth, and Paul says, I'm speaking the truth to you, but I'm doing it in love, you should speak the truth in love as well. And by the way, just because you're telling someone the truth doesn't mean you're doing it in love. I've heard people say that before. Well, I told them the truth because I love them. Well, there's a nice way and there's a not nice way. And guess what? We don't get the, you don't get to pick the terms on what's nice or not. The other person kind of does sometimes. It's kind of a difficult thought to have. But he says, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects. Again, growing maturity into him who is the head, Christ. So what are we trying to grow into? Into Jesus, yeah. That's what we're trying to do. What's my purpose? It's to follow in his footsteps. It's to walk the way he walked. It's to be like Jesus. When Jesus prays in John chapter 14, he talks about his relationship with the Father. He says, I and the Father are what? One. One. Unity. My will is the Father's will, Jesus would say. We work to have that same unity with Jesus. We push forward. We grow up. We utilize our gifts. We avoid division. We speak the truth in love so that we can mature into Jesus, who Paul calls here the head. He's using a, a body terminology again. He doesn't use cars, Bob, because they didn't have cars back then. But he uses body. We got this, right? So he uses the head, right? He says, for whom the whole body is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. I love that because Paul's not a doctor. He's not giving us, don't try to overthink the medical terminology here. First century medical terminology in their understanding is different than ours. But he gives us a good idea. He goes, look, every joint gives something in the body. It matters. And you know what? When a joint aches, you notice it, right? If the joint's not there, you notice it. But every joint is fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies. So every part works with the other parts because every part supplies something to the whole. It all works together. Try making a cake and leaving out an ingredient, okay? They all provide something according to the proper working of each individual part. So everybody does what they're supposed to do. Everybody uses the gifts that God has given them. And together, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We all come together. We build ourselves up into the body of Christ. Isn't that what a lot of times we call the church the body of Christ? And I love that he says, and it builds itself up in love Love as that glue that holds it together so that we can be united. Thoughts or comments? Seems biblical, doesn't it, Jerry? Yeah. So then verse 17. So this I say, he brings it back, and I affirm together with the Lord. So he goes, and this, I'm, what I'm telling you, <laughs> the Lord's with me on this too, just in case you were down. He said, that you will walk, there's our word, there's our key word, right? That you will walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk 
in the futility of their mind. He's already talked about their previous walk. Remember, back in the beginning of chapter 2, he talked about you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's chapter 2, verse 2. Now he says again, don't walk like the nations do or the Gentiles do. They used to, they walked in the futility of their mind. It's, they're going in places you shouldn't go. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. They don't get it. They're not enlightened yet, as you might say. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hearts of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves over to the sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He goes, don't walk that way. He goes, just in case you forget, I don't want you walking like everybody else. And in fact, the word Gentiles just means nations. So don't walk like the outsiders, okay? We would probably use the word the world today, right? We'd say, don't walk like the world. What does the world do? The world walks according to whatever they want to do. Their hearts are hardened. They do whatever makes them feel good, not about what makes God happy or others happy. Themselves over, or I love that he uses the word callous too. Again, hard-heartedness, callous. It's hard to get through. Hard-headed, stubborn, selfish, right? He goes, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They want to do whatever they want to do. I saw a statistic uh, this last week, and I, I don't remember all of it off the top of my head, but it was um, how many people in at different generational markers, whether it be Gen Z, Gen X, millennials, that kind of thing, um, identify as LGBTQ, like was somewhere on like the homosexuality kind of spectrum. And it was something like when you get down to like um, Owen's generation and up, okay, so you're talking like your late teens, early 20s, one in five, and the most common one is identify as bisexual. And you think about this idea, and I, and I, I know we, we need to be very careful to not come across as hateful, mean, prejudiced, because sometimes Christians, their approach to homosexuality is ungodly. It's, it's the mock, it's to make fun, it's to hate, you know, that kind of thing. However, the fact that the most popular one is bisexuality, and then you hear things like pansexual, which just means you want to sleep with everybody at all times. Um, it's, it's this. It's, it's, we're seeing a digression societally, and, and maybe it's not even society. Maybe we've always been doing this. Now we just celebrate it more because, you know, I've been in ministry long enough to know that we can't fake it and act like, oh, no, past generations had no problem, <laughs> right? So he goes on, he says, but they give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He goes, that's the way the world walks. They just do whatever they want. You can fill in the gaps with whatever it is. It's greediness. It's, I want to experience whatever type of pleasure I think I could find. And it ends up just being debauchery. And it, it could be selfishness and greed and all of that. But verse 20, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. That's not how you learned him though, huh? That's not how we live, he says. You're different. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, 
that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Oh, wait a second here. So he's writing to Christians. Who used to do those things? Christians did. Okay? Prior to becoming to Jesus, they were down that path too. Okay? We all are. Don't ever act like we're any better than... We all sinners needing a Savior. He goes, but you were taught differently. You were taught about Jesus. You were taught about the truth. And now our job is to lay that stuff aside. That's not us anymore. That manner of life, we're pushing it away because we want to be renewed. Verse 23, by the spirit of your mind, right? It's, it's change your attitude. Like we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, being transformed from the inside out. That's what we do. He says, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. Think about what he's done here. He said that we are becoming like Christ, verse 15, and now he says we are in the likeness of God, verse 24. That's our goal, is to be like Jesus, it's to be like God, it's to be like the Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our goal. It's to leave all that stuff behind that divides, that causes sin, that causes hardship. He goes, we get rid of all of that, but we have righteousness and the holiness of the truth. And I've been really trying to emphasize holiness lately, even in my own family. Like in, in conversation, I'll talk to the kids and say, I, you know, something like, um, make sure you're behaving in a holy way. I think we need to think about that more. It's not, well, better be good. No, it's holiness. It's dwelling place of God. It's, it's being like God. It's something different than this realm. See, it's different than do good things and not bad things. No, holiness is different, right? It's, it's sacred. That's how we're supposed to live. Sacred, holy lives. Verse 25, I told you, we got to move quickly. I want to get through this. Um, Therefore, laying aside falsehood. So get rid of all the lies. Get rid of all the deceit. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Notice he brings it back to that unity again. He goes, look, get rid of the lying. Get rid of the deceit. And just be truthful with one another. Because we're members of one another. We're part of that same body. Each joint is needed. He says, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So maybe you get angry with your brother. Just make sure you don't sin. You don't lash out to them. You don't say something hurtful. You don't post some veiled passive aggressive thing on Facebook that everybody knows who you're talking about, even though you can have deniability because you didn't mention anybody's name. Don't ever do that, by the way. That's the most ungodly thing. Um, He goes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. General rule, look, don't be a person that even stays angry. Get over it. Move on. And do not give the devil an opportunity. There it is again. He's trying to separate us from the herd. When you're lying with your, uh, or when you lie against your brother, when you're deceitful, when you're angry, you separate yourself from the group. You see this how people get bitter against a whole church sometimes. Separate themselves from the herd, right? And here's the devil, ready to pounce. He's looking for you to be angry. He's looking for you to be upset. He's looking for you to be mad at your brother. He's looking for that opportunity to pounce in and say, hey, come on back to sin like the Gentiles used to walk, right? That's what he's waiting for. But we don't live like that, verse 28. We're holy. He who steals must steal no longer. We don't do that. We used to do that. We don't anymore. 
He rather must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And notice too, it's not just, well, don't do bad things. It's stop doing the bad things and do good things with what you're doing now. I love it. Don't just, well, I stopped stealing. It's no, now work hard so that you can give to other people. That's holiness, right? He says, so that he'll have something to share with someone who is in need. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And see again, it's not just, well, don't cuss. Notice what he says here. Let's look at this because this is your don't cuss, don't say dirty verse um, or dirty joke verse that we tell all the teenagers. But look what he says. He says, only let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. It's not just about watching what you say. It's about start saying good things. You see what he does? It's don't just stop cussing out your brother, but instead look for opportunity to give grace to somebody, to say a nice thing, to encourage somebody, to tell somebody you love them. That's what you should be doing. Change your lifestyle into a positive from that negative so that we can have that unity. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God which you were sealed, um, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, when back in chapter 1, he mentioned that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We, we've talked about that we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit and that idea, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But when we sin, okay, think about this. If my life, if my soul, my body, however you want to call it, is, is a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, and I use that same body to say something hurtful to somebody, to raise my hand in anger against somebody, to be abusive or mean or manipulative to somebody. Who does that hurt? Hurts me, but what else? The Spirit. It hurts God, right? It, it grieves Him. Uh, I mean, as my children are getting older, I worry, I stress, I pay about what if they make poor choices? What if this happens? And I think about the grief that it could be in my life. And I know some of you have dealt with some things like that. And you're like, it just grieved us. It hurt us. The Spirit is in us grieving when we fall into sin. <laughs> wow. So it's not just, well, you hurt yourself when you do bad things. No. You hurt others and you hurt God himself. God who loves you, God who made you, you hurt him. Well, we're going to do these last verses. Don't be dismissed. Verse 32. So because of that, get rid of the bad stuff. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from um, you. With all malice. Get rid of all of that. But if you want to not grieve the Holy Spirit, you want to make the Spirit happy, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you that's how we make the spirit happy is by doing those things all right you got one minute for questions or comments oh absolutely it would absolutely it would if if um to the world if because one of the biggest um criticisms of christianity as a whole in this country all over the world is so many different churches right yeah yeah it does absolutely
All right, well, I appreciate your participation. We will stop right here. Next week, um, we're going to go through chapter 5 and chapter 6. Um, it's all right because a lot of chapter 6 and stuff I'm going to just kind of make big bullet points with. But I appreciate your participation. Have a 15-minute break. Greet one another. Come back in here for our worship time. You are dismissed. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.